The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! No, I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello, and welcome to Slate's Spoiler Specials. I'm Jeffrey Bloomer, the Features Editor of Slate. I run the Human Interest section. Today I'm joined by Slate Senior Editor Sam Adams. Hi, Sam. Hello. And Slate's National Editor and the host of One Year, Josh Levine. Hi, Josh. Hello, Jeff. Today we are spoiling Scream which is actually Scream 5, uh, but they, as is the fashion these days, have decided only to call it by the original title. Uh, and I am a huge fan of these movies and have been since I was a teenager. And this movie specifically and fairly mercilessly makes fun of fans of these movies that have been watching them for as long as I have. So before we get started, let's do what we always do here, since we're here to talk about the plot and not review. First, tell me what you did, what you guys thought of the movie. Uh, and also tell me how you think it ranks compared to the other Scream sequels. Do you want to start, Sam? As for how it ranks compared to the other Scream sequels, uh, I guess I would say I remember it. So in between two and four, I saw the first one when it came out. It made a huge impression on me. I have seen the other one since then, and I have enough of a memory of them that I, when I reread the summaries, they sort of ring a bell. But they are definitely not sort of stuck in my mind. I think, I mean, we'll get into how tied to all the other ones this is, but it is to a certain extent mostly dependent on the first one, which I appreciated since I have not been steeping myself in the lore. Uh, it certainly does not, in my opinion, measure up to the first one at all, but it's pretty good, I guess. I'm not sorry that I went to a movie theater and saw it, which is still the only way to, to do that currently. From the Sam Adams, did you remember it scale? I would say it definitely outranks Scream 3 and 4. As I learned maybe halfway through this that I hadn't actually seen those. I thought that I had, but for some reason I hadn't. And then when I went home and read the Wikipedia plot summaries, it was definitely confirmed that I hadn't seen them because they sounded extremely complicated and convoluted. Scream 2, I remember liking at the time. And I do still remember the opening scene in the movie theater, which I think was was great. And the original Scream, like you, Jeff, was pretty formative for me, got me interested in horror movies. And I would agree with Sam that this one does not compare, but it was really for the fans, for people like Jeff Bloomer. <laughs> Josh, I'm pretty sure that you reviewed Scream 4 in Slate magazine in 2011. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Okay. Well, you know, you caught me. I didn't actually go see it. That was somebody under a pseudonym. I'm going to look that up because uh, maybe my memory is worse than I thought it was. Well, that's the reason that I wanted you to come on here so bad because I felt like you have been Slate Scream correspondent for like a decade or more, maybe 20 years. The movie was even less memorable than, than we thought it was. So I'm a fan of Scream 4, but I won't go into that here. Um, I, I basically agree with you. I thought it was a little worse than Scream 2, but like surprisingly decent, especially as the first movie with neither the writer or director of the original movies involved. So uh, I guess we should get to the task at hand. This movie opens, as all of them do, 
in a house with a young woman who is alone to some degree or another. I suppose one of them opens in a movie theater and uh, she starts getting phone calls. And the voice on the other line initially is not very menacing and pretends to be her mother's boyfriend. The house, it's worth noting, looks a fair bit like Casey Becker's house in the original Scream. It's like quite obvious that they're sort of directly trying to tie it to that sequence. It's the most pure version of that we've had since the original movie. Eventually, the conversation turns more menacing. And the killer, well, the person on the phone anyway, asks her if she wants to play a game. And she says no. He wants to play stab trivia. And if you recall, stab is the adaptation of the events of Scream within the Scream world. And she doesn't want to play that game because she's a snob about stab movies. She's uh, she's seen maybe the first one only. I think there are eight now in this world um, at a sleepover. And she wants to be asked about The Witch, about The Babadook and other elevated horror movies. And it's maybe some of the funniest lines in the movie. How does that go for her, Josh? Well, she's able to answer some of the easier questions, the ones that I think even people who aren't super familiar with the Scream franchise or people who are familiar but have forgotten that they've seen Scream 4, like me. She knows that Heather Graham was the actress in the movie within a movie. Then there was another question that was a uh, pretty easy and, and standard issue. Gail Weathers, I think she knows that uh, the name of Courtney Cox's character, but she gets stumped on the final question, although she thinks that she knows it, which is identifying the killers plural from the original scream. Yes. And when that doesn't happen, the usual things commence. If there's a twist in the opening, it's that when she goes to open the front door and escape, the killer's already there and like stabs her right away. And then there's some kind of somewhat dated bits about her using her cell phone to lock the door. And this person seems to have her cell phone cloned or whatever and can unlock the door, but pretty short order. She's being stabbed to death on the floor of her kitchen quite brutally, even by the standards of screen movies, she's getting stabbed through the hand and all this other stuff that seemed a little bit sadistic, but you know, the Drew Barrymore sequence wasn't exactly light either. And we get the scream it's scream. Uh, And then right after that, we cut to outside of Woodsboro and there's something surprising revealed right away that's never happened in the beginning after a beginning of a screen movie. And what is that, Sam? We find out that, in fact, Tara, played by Jenna Ortega, has not been killed by uh, Ghostface, who apparently has not been watching the Stab movies closely enough. And she, we're informed of this through her older sister, Sam, who is played by Melissa Barrera, uh, recently of In the Heights, who has been gotten the fuck out of town, basically, which seems like a smart thing to do if you come from Woodsboro. But because her sister is now you know, near death in the hospital, decides to come back and bring her boyfriend with her. Uh, and that sort of gets the whole friend group together, which is we know, not only know from the previous movies, but we are, of course, reminded by a character in this movie is a crucial part of any scream slash stab movie that there is a friend group at the beginning and the killer is going to be drawn from among those people. Yeah. So run this, there's a lot that goes on in this hospital scene that reveals what's sort of going on in this movie, but talk to us about who the friend group are. So there's, there's Sam Carpenter and Tara Carpenter on the nose as always um, their boyfriend, Richie, who is played by who I believe is Dennis Quaid's son. And then um, there's Liv, who is like sort of looks like she's 30, um, one of the group. And then Wes Hicks, who is the son of Sheriff Hicks, who you may or may not recall from Scream 4. 
Is that everybody? Oh, we also have the twins. I guess they're Chad and Mindy Meeks Martin, played by Mason Gooden and Jasmine Savoy Brown, who, um, again, if you remember the first movie, are the niece and nephew of uh, Randy Meeks, uh, Jamie Kennedy's character from the first movie. And then you have Amber Freeman, played by Mikey Madison, who was last seen, I think, getting lit up by Leonardo DiCaprio as one of the Manson murderers at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is, as we will get to, is just a thing that happens to her in movies now. Yes. So the scene is all in the hospital and it's like clear that there's like a big problem between the sisters and one of them felt abandoned by the other. And we start to understand that the elder sister is hiding something. Josh, do you want to walk through that? So there's like a an initial hospital scene, and then I think there's a second hospital scene in which she tells her what um, the big family secret is, which is that um, the older sister, Sam, goes into the attic one day when she's like 13, I think, and finds her mom's high school diary. A classic rite of passage for any teen, figuring out what their parents were like around the same age or a little older. Uh, what this uh, teenager's mother was, was uh, impregnated by one of the killers from uh, the original Scream, Billy Loomis, who was played by Skeet Ulrich, who is ghost Skeet Ulrich in, in this movie. And so the older sister, Sam, lays all of this out to the younger sister and explains that when she found out about this, she confronted her mom, that the person she thought was her dad wasn't her dad, that her dad was actually the serial killer. When she broke the news to her mom, her not biological dad was actually in the room and he found out at the same time. And so reading the diary, revealing this family secret, broke up her family, led the older sister to a life of juvenile delinquency. She had never told the younger sister about it. That's why she left town. That's why the younger sister felt abandoned. It was Skeet Ulrich and ghost Skeet Ulrich who was haunting their uh, their family. Yeah, and we really can't talk enough about ghost Skeet Ulrich when the screening, when I saw it, which is, he's actually sort of a figment of Sam's imagination. It seems like she might be on antipsychotics and have some of her father's um, traits. And he shows up in like a bathroom sequence in like a de-aged, like kind of zombie looking performance. And like the theater where I saw it and just like absolutely lost their shit the second he came out because everybody, you talk about fan service. It was really something. What did you uh, think about all of that, Sam? Yeah, as 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 someone who remembers the first movie, yeah, it was sort of neat to see him. And I was kind of, I mean, the, the de-aging thing is not, uh, or, you know, sort of spooky floating ghosts or whatever it is he looks like is not something you expect to see in a Scream movie. These movies are for sort of all their references to kind of the more you know supernatural trending um sort of sub tributary of the slasher genre your halloweens and such um they're very material and all the stuff that seems to be mysterious or inexplicable always turns out to have a very concrete answer so it was definitely like a weird thing to see in this and is one of the i guess one of the things that underlines that this is not in fact like you know, just sort of a, a reboot of the original and that, you know, this, none of the original people are, are involved. That is one of the things that pushes it in like just a little bit of a different direction. There isn't a ton of that. And I think it's hard. One of the things that's tricky about this movie for me is this is a movie that kind of tries to do what Scream did to the movies before it to just add like another layer of meta and turning it on itself, self-consciousness. And there's, that's kind of a difficult thing to do. You can sort of only do it once. The thing that struck me about Ghost Skeet was, and I'm curious if you guys agree, this does not seem like a thing that the movie was 
being kind of self-conscious or engaging in meta commentary about like it didn't seem like necessarily the filmmakers wanted us to laugh at it and think that it was ridiculous and also it was one of a couple of things in the movie that I felt like they were setting us up for something that didn't ultimately pay off because in a movie like this when the main character is like having visions and hallucinations the payoff is typically oh like what we're seeing as the audience on the screen maybe isn't reality like it comes out like maybe she was you know she's two people or like you know all the dumb kind of classic tropes of the genre but then it turns out like that her seeing visions of her dead serial killer father is ultimately like doesn't betray any sort of like unreliable narration in the movie it's just like ghost skeet ulrich is just like hanging out sometimes yeah i mean it's part of the text a little because she does mention her medications and everything and i think that it's playing into which we can talk about in a minute how this movie just like way overplays its hand on like making everyone seem like a suspect like that's obviously a joke in all the screen movies but this one it's like done to the point where it's like meaningless by the end who it ends up being because it's like such like a roulette of like possibilities um i think you're right though that this that wasn't really playing necessarily into that layer like this isn't the first time there were ghosts in Scream, like Sydney's ghost mom showed up in Scream 3. I'm so glad you're here, Jeff, so you can remind us of these things. I've seen these movies perhaps too many times. I guess I thought that this one worked a little better as like a nod fans. And it was funny, like there was a final appearance by Skeet at the end of the movie that we'll talk about later that was like a genuine like laugh out loud kind of deal. And the Scream's not always laugh out loud funny. Usually it's more like a snicker. And this movie has some real laugh lines, I thought. It worked for me too as a sort of reference to, you know, this isn't a movie that is like just interested in the Scream or the Stab franchise, but is really very interested, you know, very much about like sort of fan culture in general, like the way that you can remember that the most recent Stab movie, the one that all the fans hated in this movie is Stab 8 is because it's directed by Ryan Johnson. He also directed the eighth Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, which of course was famously polarizing among Star Wars fans, you know, and that franchise also has its share of sort of goofy uh, regenerating of dead characters and glowy force ghosts and stuff like that. So it almost felt like, you know, Obi-Wan turning up at the end of Return of the Jedi or something like that when when Billy Loomis shows up as this kind of glowy, de-aged whatever in this movie. Yeah, there's, there's so many things that we have to get to. Um, but first, we are going to take a quick break uh, and we'll be back shortly. If you enjoy spoiler specials, the best way to support the show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get no ads in any Slate podcast. Spoiler specials also wouldn't be possible without the support. Slate Plus keeps us going. With Slate Plus, you'll get bonus segments or episodes from our show spoiler specials, along with Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gab Fest, Culture Gab Fest, and many more of your favorite Slate podcasts. And you'll have unlimited reading on the Slate website, access to every article and advice column on Slate, and you'll never hit the paywall. To join today, go to slate.com forward slash spoiler plus. That's slate.com forward slash S-P-O-I-L-E-R-P-L-U-S. Okay, to get back to the actual plot here. Meanwhile, while all of this hospital stuff is happening, this, the group of the new young things congregated a bar, and there's this sort of uh, creepy dude who's hitting on one of the women in the group that seemed to have been... She seemed to have dated him at some point, but he's like an older guy. The actor himself is a little bit of an Easter egg within the movie because his name is Kyle Gallner and he was in some of Wes Craven's lesser recent thrillers and horror movies like My Soul of the Take and um, Red Eye. Uh, he has a very brief role uh, because he is almost immediately killed in the parking lot. And we come to find immediately news of his 
um, murder who he actually dies unlike a lot of people in this movie um, spreads around and it becomes clear that he was Stu, the original killer's nephew, I think. So at the same time, we find this out about uh, Stu's nephew. You know, we're also learning that Sam is the daughter of Billy Loomis. And so um, the other sister, Tara, the other sister being targeted at the beginning of the movie starts to make sense as part of this pattern of the killer targeting people who are related to people from the original movie. Going back to the original sort of the theme. And then Sam, there's a lot going on, but take us to when they finally do bring back an actual character from the original movie. The first thing that happens before then is we lose a couple more sort of present day frame characters, right? Who are also uh, connected. We lose uh, Wes and his mom, who's the current sheriff, uh, Judy Hicks, played by Marley Shelton. This sort of, you know, sort of, I don't know, spreads enough alarm among the survivors. And once they start realizing that all these people are connected to the original crimes, they need to track down somebody sort of connected to the events of the first movie. And the person who is still currently in town, um, now a divorced uh, ex-sheriff living in a trailer park, is Dewey, played once again by David Arquette. I just read this entire movie as sort of a commentary on the dissolution of the David Arquette and Courtney Cox marriage. Really, that's <laughs> that, that was my takeaway from Scream 5. But glad to see that they were able to share the screen together, able to have some lovely, you know, moments. And there's such a sort of perfect introduction to him, too, because David Arquette has always, you know, since being sort of the goofy Deputy Dewey in the first movie, has always had such a sort of, uh, like, kind of charmingly, like, hangdog presence here. So here is, like you know, divorced, you know, washed up, living in a trailer. But the first thing we see is him, like, watching Gail, who is now basically an anchor of the Today Show in New York. And he's just, you know, watching her on TV like he does every morning, apparently. So I'm not a big Star Wars guy, but it seems pretty obvious to me that he is the Harrison Ford slash Han Solo of the Scream series. And he gets brought back in the reboot, requel, whatever we want to call it. And we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but we can spoil the spoiler special. He, the same fate befalls him that befell Harrison Ford slash Han Solo in one of the recent Star Wars movies, right, Sam? Yes, in almost exactly the same way, too. He doesn't get a lightsaber through the chest, but he gets a sort of similarly like disemboweled send-off in this movie. Yes, he's the only character that they brought back in what I felt was like an actually meaningful way where they had a lot of presence. Sydney eventually comes back later and um, Gail, you know, parachutes in to cover the new murder since it's sort of her thing. But he actually had sort of a little bit of an arc in this movie. And I'm grateful that they finally killed one of them because it's beginning a little bit ridiculous. But before Dewey dies, he sort of sets into play sort of the mechanics of them questioning each other and trying to figure out who the killer is. When he meets Sam and Richie, he immediately asks Sam how long she's known Richie. And it seems like a joke at the time, but maybe she shouldn't take it as such a joke. And then he sort of like very begrudgingly agrees to get involved in them trying to sleuth out what's going on here. Dewey is also the one who sort of has like the equivalent of like the rules speech in this Jasmine Sive Brown's character um, is sort of like, she's the token sort of cinema nerd in this movie, but Dewey is the one who says like, look, it's always somebody from the friend group. You know, your first suspect is always the love interest who is Sam's boyfriend, um, which turns out to be very good advice that they don't take for a while. So he's the one who based on his actual experience, you know, of, of tracking down a serial killer rather than having seen a lot of movies about serial killers. He's the one who gives them that advice. But of course, you know, one of the things that happens in this universe is there's 
those two things always end up being the same. The kind of movie serial killers and the real serial killers are always um, feed in on each other. Yeah. And we should say in this, like um, the scene, they're throwing a lot of terms around like requel, like a combination of a remake and a sequel. I don't even know if that's a real word. I don't remember anyone saying that, but in any case, there's these two twins, Mindy and Chad, and it turns out in this scene in one of the movies, more charming cameos that they're the nephew, as we mentioned before of Randy Meeks, who um was the sort of original voice of like what's really happening in a horror movie in Scream. And his sister, who uh, appeared in Scream 3 as sort of a surrogate for him after he was killed in the second movie, appears in this one in a very brief role. Um, what is that actress's name? Heather Matarazzo? Heather Matarazzo, yes. From Welcome to the Dollhouse. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. Like, again, either not having seen or not remembering Scream 3, the fact that this was a reference to the Scream movies. But I thought it was just like a shout out to the Todd Solons fans in the audience. Like, wow, that's uh, Heather Matarazzo. <laughs> Uh, no, she played, yeah, she was Randy's sister. And so it was, I don't know, it was a charming moment. The whole the whole movie, it's like these scenes play out in a way where it like basically is competent and like the dialogue is pretty fast and funny, but this movie in particular struggles to create any sense of connection with or originality with its new characters. I felt, and that was really starting to settle in here for me, the extent to which these people were mainly there to be killed or not killed as weirdly often the case in this movie. There's also a long chunk in the middle of the movie where the new characters are largely abandoned, which I don't recall exactly how long it was, but it was notable to me in watching it. And I think there is a kind of dispensability to the new characters, both in terms of the you know, if you look at the body count, but also at screen time, it's just like, I'm not saying that I necessarily missed them when I wasn't there, but it it didn't seem like the directors really cared about them either, which, you know, you could tell based on the arc of the plot. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that made the original Scream work so well for me is it had this, you know, what felt very new and fresh at the time, sort of, you know, meta-commentary aspect to it, but it also just worked so well in a really straightforward movie. Like that opening murder of drew barrymore in the first movie like like i remember like actually making me like sick to my stomach when i watched it just really shook me you know physically she got disemboweled and hung in a tree <laughs> yeah so it was really you know it was not like fucking around and you know and the characters were sort of cliches or characters or something but they also had a certain they were at least like memorable i mean you're not going to forget like matthew lillard's performance in that movie for example, and I just I don't think like any of the characters or the actors in this movie are really getting that much to do. And it kind of shows you where that where the movie's interests lie, which is really not in you know making you care that these people are eventually getting their guts ripped out. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And especially the new screen queen. Um, I understand that people love this actress, but the Sam character is so blah and it just the performance does not register here. The sister played by Jenny Ortega, I think is her name. Tara, that is a little bit more of a distinctive thing. And she ends up sort of becoming more the heart of the movie in a weird way, um, which takes us into what the next sequence that we were just referencing in which Dewey finally um, meets the knife or meets the knife fatally um, since he's stabbed in pretty much all these movies. They're in the hospital, basically. They're running to the hospital because uh, the killer tricks the cops from coming over to where the deputy and her son or the sheriff and her son had just been murdered. And so she's unprotected on this, on this hospital floor that she's all by herself. And so there's this really kind of brutal sequence where she's trying to like wheel away and her hands are like, you know, have been stabbed. It's like extremely violent. Um, and then they, they show up and they actually do manage to get away. 
but not before shooting the killer who shows up and like Dewey just before he's about to get on the elevator and get out of there with them. It's like, no, he's going to come back. I have to go check the killer and then goes <laughs> to where the killer is lying there. And somehow what is his cell phone ring? Cause Gail's calling him or something. And like, that's enough for the killer to jump up and stab Dewey to death. And what is like fairly conclusive He's dead. So at least the movie has some nerve. Um, and I have to say, bless David Arquette for not only being willing to like relive his divorce in this like play acting way in which like famously publicly, he was the one who did not want a divorce and she did, but they filmed Scream 4 in Ann Arbor. And I was still living there at the time because I was at the University of Michigan and all around town, that was when they were divorcing and all around town, David Arquette was just getting smashed in bars. And it was so sad because everybody knew what was going on. And uh, for him to come back and play this movie only to be stabbed to death in really bloody fashion, he was a very good sport. Thank you, David Arquette, for this uh, performance. And he doesn't even he doesn't even get to see Gail. It's very, very poignant. Let's pause our conversation for a quick break. Okay, welcome back. You may have noticed one person in this movie um, that we have not talked about at all is Sydney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell, who is in this movie. Not that much. Um, she doesn't really come back when this all starts. It's revealed that she has children. She's walking them on the boardwalk when they call her. She makes a joke about how she has a gun and she's Sydney Prescott and she'll be fine. Uh, but when Dewey is killed, she does come back to Woodsboro and meets with Gail. Josh, do you want to take us ahead uh, with... Sid's return. Yeah, so there's a little kind of joke in that Dewey tells both Gail and Sydney not to come back. We obviously know that they are going to come back and they both inevitably do. There is a little Easter egg, which I only know about because I read it on the internet, that Sydney says that she's married to Mark, who apparently is a character played by Patrick Dempsey in one of the earlier movies, which made me think, if you have Patrick Dempsey in a Scream movie and you don't kill him off, that seems like a huge missed opportunity. But apparently he's still alive, not seen on screen. I did not realize that they explicitly acknowledged that he, but yeah, he was Mark Kincaid, the detective who saves Sydney at the end of Scream 3. And I'll say this, he was at peak hotness, Patrick Dempsey. This was like McDreamy era. So it made sense that he lived kind of. They were like a cute couple. At the end of Scream Three, they like are like at a house together and they leave the door open and it's meant to say that they've moved beyond Ghostface. It's referenced in such a way that only the hardcore fans, even harder core than Jeff Bloomer, apparently would get the reference that she's uh, with Patrick Dempsey. But yeah, she comes back and she sort of like, you know, very sort of self-confident and like, I've been here before. I know what's happening. I'm going to come and wreck shit, you know, in the classic Sydney Prescott fashion. And I found her performance, and maybe Jeff, you can tell us, like this is in keeping with how the character has developed over the series, but I found her performance like strangely, just like totally unaffected by anything going around her, just like seeming like pretty blase about the whole thing, just like unconcerned, unruffled, and almost like not taking it seriously, which struck me as a little bit odd, but maybe that's just like my lack of knowledge of the character. It was sort of her vibe in Scream 4 as well. Like in Scream 3, she was a wreck. By Scream 4, she had written a book about it. And like, 
it turned out in Scream 4 that her like niece was the killer and she like electrocuted her to death in like a hospital or bed with like those paddle things. Um, like she like doesn't give a fuck anymore. But that said, that's a, I think that's a fair criticism. Like if Halloween has made Laurie Strode into like a crazy militant backwoods like lunatic, like Sydney seems like pretty well adjusted comparatively. She's back. She's kind of like trying to like connect with the like, new characters, but it's really not that interesting. Basically though, pretty soon after she gets back, we go pretty quickly into the final sequence. Um, Sam, do you want to set that up for us? Yes. Well, so naturally, Sam and Tara and Sam's boyfriend, Richie, uh, have decided once again to go back where they started and get the fuck out of Woodrow. So they are on their way out, but they discover, oh, inconveniently, that Tara does not have her inhaler that she needs. So they have to stop by Amber's house, where, again, for whatever reason, their friends have sort of decided to throw a rager. So they're stopping there. And meanwhile, Gail and Sydney are sort of doing their snooping, tracking down the kids. They put a Gail, still the sort of intrepid, uh, ethically shaky reporter, has put a tracking device on their car. Actually, Sam, Sydney is the one who puts the tracker oh, on. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I impugned the wrong person's ethics. And I apologize. It is it is at this point that they realize that the house that Amber lives in is uh, the house of Stu Mocker, um, the kind of forgotten sort of other killer from the first movie, which tells you, based on the way this movie works, that some shit is going to go down. Yes. So we get, and when they realize this, it's the house that the climax of the original scream took place in. Um, I neglected to Google to find out if they just like use the same house or if they uh, sort of retrofitted some other house to look like it, but it's like a sort of a cute Easter egg, I suppose. And um, people seem to enjoy it in the theater that I was in. So this party is proceeding. The characters are behaving in really stupid ways. Of course, one won't have sex with his girlfriend because he's like, well, I don't know that you're not the killer. And of course, her response to that is to like run off like away from everybody else. And some of the characters won't go in the basement because there's like an echo of the scene where Rose McGowan is killed in the original scream. And there's all this kind of stuff going on. But pretty quickly, people start getting killed. And this is as Sydney is on the way. And for whatever reason, um, Sam, Tara, and Richie are stuck there. Even though they just went to get Tara's inhaler, um, they don't seem to leave with any haste from this party. They kick other people out, but it doesn't, it's still ongoing. And um, one of the twins that's Randy's nephew is killed when he goes looking for the girlfriend he wouldn't have sex with or seemingly killed. And then, there's maybe, I can't even remember if anyone else dies in that immediate interlude, but pretty soon it's time to unmask the first killer. It happens when a character is like, they're all kind of staring at the older woman who looks like she's 30. What was her name? Liv. Liv. Ironically. Yeah. So she like she had discovered her boyfriend stabbed and bloody at that point. And so they suspect that she's the killer. And she's going on about how she's not the killer. It's a girl whose house it is, Amber says, I know you're not the killer. It takes out a gun and shoots her in the head. And so it's like that classic great scream moment, even though in this one, it's like completely random kind of who the killers ultimately are. It's revealed that she is in fact, one of them. She also says, you know, just in a, to, as a hint of sort of the level of self-awareness here, she says, welcome to act three as the introduction to the third act. Yes. And then the characters start to scatter a little bit. And there's like a, maybe a brief few interlude. I can't really remember. Josh, you've seen this more recently. Take us to the next step. And like, what, what is perhaps the more surprising killer reveal? So Tara's not around at this point. The one who is the younger sister who had been attacked in the opening of the movie and, you know, at this point, there's a dwindling number of people who are either still alive or not totally incapacitated. We have Amber, 
we have uh, Sam, the older sister. We have Richie, the boyfriend. We have Tara, the younger sister. And Sam and Richie are having a conversation as some of the very few people who are still alive. And Richie's like, maybe it's uh, Tara, you know, the younger sister. You know, it could be her. And so Sam goes upstairs in this house and finds her younger sister actually tied up, mouth taped in a closet. And Tara actually, I believe, confronts her own sister with a knife. Even the siblings are doubting each other and turning on each other. And we kind of leave that scene and don't really know what the outcome is. Yada, 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 some other stuff happens. And uh, Richie, the boyfriend, ends up in a surprising twist, or maybe not that surprising twist, stabbing his girlfriend, Sam. I thought that that was a relatively decent reveal as much as I've been impugning this movie's ability to make you care about the new characters, because that one was written in a funny way where he's like spending the whole movie watching the old stab movies, trying to learn the rules of everything. It turns out in his reveal, and once they start talking, as all the killers in these movies always do, this is the, the king of the talking killer movies, as Roger Ebert used to call them. They start talking about how they're stab super fans and that all these references to stab eight and Rian Johnson and true fans of the original movies being miffed by the the last couple of sequels, I suppose. There's one where the ghost face is like wearing a metallic mask and using flamethrowers and stuff. And obviously they don't like that very much. And the whole thing they're doing with this movie is an attempt to draw it back to the original and set up another movie that can then be made. And I don't know. I kind of believe that it wasn't Richie. Uh, And it was, even though everyone kept saying that it was him earlier in the movie. I will confess that I was surprised as well, but I chalked that up to my just chronic inability to guess what's going to happen in movies. I thought I was just being an idiot because when you think about it at the end and once it's revealed, it like retroactively doesn't seem surprising at all. And you kind of feel dumb for not anticipating it, which I guess is a good, you know, piece of filmmaking. Like if you're like, oh, like it's it's worse if I think in some of these movies in the end, you're like, well, it could have been any one of a million people and this wasn't really set up in any kind of particular way. But in this movie, it actually was set up. They did kind of leave clues and it actually does kind of make sense that it was him, even if you if it did feel surprising in the moment. So bully to them. They sort of double bluff you in a way because Dewey explicitly says, like, it's always the love interest. And then it's like, well, it can't be the love interest because Dewey said it's a love interest and it has to be a surprise. So it can't be the thing that somebody has already explicitly said it should be. And then it turns out it is. And Sam, I think it's also, you know, to consistent and maybe to the credit of the filmmakers that it was the love interest in the original Scream movie, too. And so that's like fits with the theme of going back to the original. Yes. And in Scream 2, at the end of that, if you recall, she briefly thinks it's her boyfriend and then her boyfriend gets killed by the real killer. And he's like, oh, you'll never love anyone again kind of deal. So it's playing with like lots and lots of layers here of shit. But anyway, they go on this long tangent and they uh, say they basically reveal all of this. And I should say in another pretty clever bit, Gail and um, Sydney show up to the house and Amber comes out pretending like she's been stabbed and Sydney and Gail kind of look at each other and they're like, nope, she's definitely a killer. But Gail ends up getting shot anyway, because I don't even understand. Gail always gets shot in the same place in these movies, like in her lower abdomen. And then like is basically out of commission. And now I'm going to ask you, Josh, because I can't exactly remember everything that happens, but you can guess that these killers are about to be dispatched in terrible ways. And you would be guessing right. One of them gets set on fire. Can you recall here? 
yeah, she gets covered in hand sanitizer too, which is this movie's only possible concession to the pandemic. But yeah, they cover her with you know alcohol-based hand sanitizer and then get her up against the stove and shoot her. And then not only she gets shot, but also lit on fire and must be dead at that point because, you know, clearly it only takes one, uh, one shot to kill somebody. So that happens to her. And then with Richie, the boyfriend, there's some sort of machinations to get the gun out of his hand or whatever. I honestly don't remember that part. But the part that I will never forget, at least for the next like week or so, is that ghost Skeet Ulrich emerges at just the right time. Sometimes you don't want ghost Skeet Ulrich over your shoulder, and sometimes you do. And he points his uh, daughter towards a knife and is like, you know what you got to do, Sam? Let's uh, let's get this done. So she picks up the knife and stabs uh, Richie, then stabs him again, stabs him again, stabs him again, stabs him again, over and over and over and over again. And it's a very uh, kind of affecting moment. She embraces her serial killer DNA. And so he is definitely dead. Even in the world of Scream, he's dead. But as uh, Sam was getting out before, the woman who'd been totally barbecued does emerge to to take a second uh shot at at our heroes but she gets shot and then it's over yes and i believe it's tara who pops out finally the one who had been cut up and left in a wheelchair for most of the movie from the beginning and she shoots her and she has what i think is the best line in the movie which is i still prefer the babadook great callback i actually laughed (laughs) yeah you saw that with a crowd like how did the crowd Take that one. Oh, yeah. People loved it. This movie, I will say, is the first one that doesn't have the writer or director, Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson from the original involved. They hit a lot of notes of like genuinely funny lines and the clip of dialogue in a way that I was uh, fairly impressed by compared, especially to Scream 3, which was written by Aaron Kruger of Transformers fame and just like terrible dialogue compared to the other movies. Um, this one was genuinely pretty funny. And this was the team radio silence behind like VHS and Ready or Not. I loved Ready or Not. I thought it was one of the better horror movies of of this recent generation. And so I thought it was kind of an interesting choice by both them and by whoever in this post Weinstein universe has the rights to this movie. To but because it it was you know, fairly faithful, except for a few small ways. And it was, it didn't really require their talents of reinvention and reanimation of the genre. It was fairly reverent. And it was also interesting, given that there's all these references to Stab Aid and Ryan Johnson, right? Like, because Wes Craven had been involved in all the Scream movies before, they couldn't say, like, in a more direct way, like, Scream 4 was bad, for example, or Scream 3 was bad. So they had to invent fake, like, movie within a movie, like Stab 8, because they didn't want to impugn Wes Craven's legacy. It's sort of like a tricky, you know, tightrope to walk there. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think if they did entirely too much in terms of, like, the layer upon layer of linking reverence and, like, perhaps not quite enough in, like, making this movie genuinely scary. Um, Given its Omicron era strong box office, I think that we can fairly say we're going to be in for, I don't know, what are they going to call the next one? It can't be Scream 6, Scream Kills, Scream Forever, Scream More. (laughs) I don't know, but we're going to have Scream, Scream 2, 2. Yeah, I don't know. I think we can rest assured um, that Paramount is not going to sleep on this new jewel um, and its cap and it's going to be releasing more Scream movies. So these guys are going to have another shot at it and hopefully they feel emboldened to do a little bit less or to do something a little bit different. Because I think that 
it's even for me, a super fan who has, as his movies parlance, been watching these movies since uh, he was 11 years old. I'm ready for them to maybe do something a little new. We'll see. Two closing thoughts for me. One kind of kudos and one thing that I found totally confounding. The kudos, going back to the opening scene, because I think that's really the trademark of these movies. The movie trivia thing in the beginning, once you know who the killers are and that they're these kind of obsessed fans who like want to bring back the stab movies, it actually makes more sense than the movie trivia aspect in the original Scream opening sequence. Unless I'm like missing out on on something. Like I don't think Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker, like the kind of quintessence of their characters was like they're obsessed with the movie Halloween. Like their motivation was more around like family and things like that. Whereas in this movie, it just seems like, oh, it's kind of like a lame callback to like, oh, they're doing movie trivia again. It's actually like kind of motivated by the plot, which I thought was uh, kind of clever. Then the thing that I didn't understand at all, and maybe I'm just like not uh, allowing myself to fall into the Scream universe. I'm right in thinking that it turns out to have been Amber, who was the one that killed Dewey, right? And is in the hospital and like gets shot multiple times, like, and must be if not dead, apparently, then like suffering some fairly severe wounds. Then when, at like the party sequence at the end, she's just like hopping around. It doesn't seem to have like any evidence of having gone through like any sort of uh, trauma, doesn't have any like oozing like w- wounds or covered in bandages or anything. You might have missed one beat there in a very lame, classic, stupid horror movie move. Ghostface lifts up ah. the the costume and it's a um, bulletproof vest. Classic. It's like not, I don't blame you for missing that because it's so stupid. But yeah, I mean, it's true though. The other thing with Amber is that she's like, what, five foot and must weigh like 110 pounds. And she's like absolutely fucking carving like these grown men up all over the place. And it's like, that does seem a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, there's like a long history in these movies, right, Jeff? Of I mean, Ghostface is always sort of the same height and super strong and, you know, has the same voice no matter whether it is like a five foot woman or a six foot two man underneath the robe. Like part of that is just kind of hiding the ball. So you can't tell who's in there, but Ghostface is always sort of alarmingly strong and fast in a way that is like not quite superhuman, but not quite sort of like practically plausible either. Maybe Scream 6 will be two toddlers in a trench coat. Like maybe that's the direction (laughs) that the franchise will go in. They got to figure something out. But I'm really heartened to know that we all sort of agree. Not bad, Scream 5. Not bad. I mean, this has been a real journey for me to like realize that I had reviewed Scream 4 and not remembered it. So I'm sort of like facing my own mortality here. But I enjoyed talking about this with you guys. Uh, I very much enjoyed talking about it with both of you. And we have to do this again for Scream 6 so that I can also mount my defense of Scream 4. Um, so listeners can really um, anticipate that. Uh, Thank you to Josh and thank you, Sam. That's our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, uh, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share at all, please email spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Jasmine Ellis. Our senior managing producer is June Thomas. For Sam Adams and Josh Levine, I'm Jeffrey Bloomer. Thanks for listening.